When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. My name is Giles Brandreth, and I do this weekly podcast with my wonderful friend Susie Dent. Susie, how are you today? I am fine, although we should mention that we're recording this on the absolutely hottest day of the year, aren't we? But my house, thankfully, is quite cool. Uh, Not so great in winter, but perfect on a day like today. And uh, I did make the mistake of going out. Well, that wasn't the mistake. I was doing the school run, but I decided it would be cooler to drive for once rather than walk. And I got into a bit of difficulty. <laughs> it was, I couldn't touch anything in my car. How about you? Are, are well, you cool? I don't have any problem with the heat and I have very good advice to offer people when the weather is incredible, as it has been in the UK recently. I say to people, this is the time to go to church. Yeah, Because, curiously, church buildings, very few of which are air-conditioned, nonetheless are often very, have tall interiors and they're very airy. And happily, many of the churches within the British Isles are freely open to all and sundry. And certainly, almost all our great cathedrals are open. And they are so cool and so beautiful. So if you are in search of a cool experience, never mind a spiritual experience, I recommend visiting your nearest cathedral. And in the UK, believe it or not, there's no part of the UK that is more than 70 miles from the sea. Mm. And there's no part of the UK that is much more than 80 miles from a cathedral. Really? So you should be able to find a cathedral not far from you. There are a lot of them, and there are a lot of them all over the world. So that made me think, why don't we talk about cathedrals, the language of cathedrals? I have so many stories to share with you of my cathedral experiences. We may pace ourselves before we get to those. Um, But are you happy to talk about cathedrals? Do you often go to a cathedral? I don't, probably not often enough. But if you remember, I think we also discussed very recently in a recent uh, episode of the podcast what the criteria were for calling a city a city. And I thought that it had to have a cathedral. But you told me that that was actually uh, a myth. That's certainly a myth. There are plenty of uh, places that have cathedrals, like Guildford, which I think is where we were discussing, that is a beautiful cathedral, or an interesting cathedral. It's not very old, but I find it attractive, uh, that isn't a city. A city is something that is designated by, in this country, Her Majesty the Queen gives you the status of a city. Uh, You may well be, for example, like the city of Chester, so-called, that actually only became officially a city in the 1990s. It actually got city status then. It has had a cathedral for nearly a thousand years, one of the most beautiful cathedrals in the country. And I know it well because I'm the Chancellor of the University of Chester and we do our graduation ceremonies there. So for me, one of the the treats of the graduation ceremony is not just meeting all the graduates, shaking their hands and saying, well done, but as I'm waiting for them to come up, I'm gazing out over this amazing building 
that's been there, parts of it have been there for more than a thousand years. It's fantastic. So I won't be able to resist telling you some of my my favourite cathedral stories, but I'm going to try to be good. And since this is supposed to be a podcast all about etymology and words and language, if you take me into the etymology of the word cathedral for a start, what is a cathedral in the dictionary and how long has it been around and why is a cathedral so-called? Okay, so um, in the dictionary, cathedral is defined as the chair or seat of a bishop in his church. Uh, Obviously, this was written a while ago. Hence, the Episcopal See, as in S-E-E, in the religious sense, or at least in in the church sense. And that chair or seat of a bishop is key to the etymology because it goes back to, uh, it came to us via Latin, but ultimately goes back to the Greek for a chair and actually for sort of sitting down. So it was all about the power, I guess, bestowed by God upon the seat of a bishop who would be then governing over their church. So the word cathedra, cathedra, which is yes. the heart of this, what does that mean in Latin? It means a chair, essentially. It, it's a chair. Yes. When they, something, something is described as being ex-cathedra, you know that phrase, what does that mean? That means from the chair. So it really means sort of with authority. So it ah. means in the manner of one speaking from the seat of office, if you like, so you know what you're talking about, and thus it's a kind of authoritative and official statement, really. Okay. Or judgment, quite often. So a cathedral is a church that contains the cathedra, the chair, of the bishop. So it's the sort of central church of a diocese, and it's usually obviously specific to Christian denominations, the other sort of places of worship of other faiths we may come to in other episodes. And cathedrals as we know them, they've been appearing in in Europe since the fourth century, in Italy, in, in France, Gaul as it was, Spain, even North Africa. And we have cathedrals in this country going back for more than a, a thousand years. And I cannot go to a a city, a town that has a cathedral without visiting it. I just love them. I love them because they're cool. I love them because mostly they've been around for so many years. And it's wonderful to be in a building that people have been visiting for so long. It puts puts things in perspective. And it's interesting that I can do this because I must have told you before about my traumatic experience in 1970 at Canterbury Cathedral. no. I must have told you this story. Well, if you have, I apologise because I've forgotten. But tell me again. <laughs> yes, yes. You, well, I'm amazed. I have maybe because it's so traumatic. I don't often tell the tale. 1970, almost my first television assignment. I was sent to Canterbury Cathedral to interview the then Archbishop of Canterbury about Thomas Beckett. You will recall that Thomas Beckett had been an Archbishop of Canterbury who was murdered. Murdered in the cathedral. In the cathedral. Yes. Indeed, there's a famous play by T.S. Eliot T.S. about yeah. that very subject called Murder of the Cathedral. Yeah. It, this took place, I think, in 1170. So it's 1970, it's 800 years later, and I'm interviewing the then Archbishop of Canterbury about this experience. There's going to be a wonderful service to mark this anniversary, and playing at the service is going to be the great virtuoso violinist Yehudi Menuhin. (gasps) Wow. So there I am, waiting uh, at the steps uh, leading down to the crypt. Oh, 
Maybe I should stop here and ask you for the definition of the origin of the word crypt, C-R-Y-P-T. It's all about things that are hidden, if you like. So a crypt um, for the Romans was a covered passage or um, an arcade, but also an underground room uh, that was used for religious rites. So it's a bit like a vault, and it, it always has been, um, sometimes applied to a grotto as well. But I think ultimately it goes back to a Greek word meaning hidden or concealed, and it's actually linked to apocrypha, that C-R-Y. P bit because apocrypha were originally sort of hidden stories, if you like, and sort of tales of things that had not been told before, and that was sometimes just a little bit spurious um, as well. So it goes back to that idea of sort of being hidden away. So the crypt is this area under, in fact, under the cathedral in this case, where the Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, and I are standing at the top of the steps, the stone stairs, leading down into the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral. We are waiting for the arrival of Yehudi Menuhin. He arrives. He gets out of his limousine. He comes towards us. He's quite a small man. And he has got in his hand, his right hand, he's got a violin case. Of course, it's the great Yehudi Menuhin, virtuoso violinist. And I'm, I'm intrigued because this violin case is attached to his wrist by apparently handcuffs. And I say, what are these handcuffs about? And Mr. Menuhin says, ah, it's because the violin I brought today is one of my Stradivarius violins. Yes, this is this is now, as soon as you mentioned Stradivarius, this is one of the best stories you have ever told. I didn't remember it began in a cathedral. I apologise, but keep going because it's well, brilliant. Well, I'll try and do it if people have heard it before. I'll try and do it as concisely as I can. So he reveals to us in his violin case this Stradivarius. It is the older of the Stradivariuses that he owns. He tells us it is the older Stradivarius violin being played in the world. It is perfect tone made by the father of the Stradivarius family. And I say to him, oh, Mr. Menuhin, I've never seen a Stradivarius before. I've never held one. Might I hold your Stradivarius? Mm. And Yehudi Menuhin very generously placed his precious, priceless Stradivarius in my hands. And in a moment of exuberance and overexcitement, I turned to the Archbishop of Canterbury and said, look, I'm holding a Yehudi Menuhin's And as I turned, I obviously turned too quickly and the Stradivarius slipped my grasp and the Archbishop uh, reached out to try and get it and in doing so tipped the edge of it. And the Stradivarius began spinning through the air. It sort of rolled over and over again and it began to descend the stone steps into the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral, bouncing off the stone step, boing, 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 smash. No. And it landed, apparently, on the very spot where 800 years before Thomas Beckett had been murdered, which was, I felt, quite a coincidence. Oh, good grief. So just, just is there a word for how you felt at that precise moment in time? There isn't. I wanted the earth to swallow me up. Uh, the, the truth was, the, the violin, which can still be seen, if people find this story hard to believe, go to the Royal Academy of Music, or the Royal College of Music, whichever the one is on the Marylebone Road. He left his instruments to this college, and they're on display on the first floor, the first, uh, the ground floor there. In a case, you'll find this violin. With sellotape. You'll see, yeah, you'll see the damage done to it. Uh, he was due to play this unaccompanied bark. This was all going to be broadcast. And... We said, what are you going to do now? And he said, I've got another violin in the in the boot of my car. I keep a spare one just in case. And I piped up brightly. Can I fetch it for you? Oh, no. <laughs> he said, no, you can't. At least I think that's what he said. Uh, anyway. So I, I cannot go into a cathedral without having this sort of traumatic moment relived briefly. Anyway, we ought to explain that actually the shape of a cathedral, like the shape of many a church, but a cathedral particularly, they have the cruciform shape 
that there was, as it were, of the cross on which Christ was crucified. Uh, That's often known as the axis. What is the origin of the word axis? The axis is related to the axle of a wheel, believe it or not, because it's all about pivoting, if you like. So in religious terms, you would have the axis of the earth and the heavens, but it is the pivot on which anything turns. So the axis of a subject is the point, the sort of fundamental point, if you like. And from there, it came to mean a straight line about which a body rotated. It's lots and lots of different meanings, Um, but it was all about the sort of symmetrical arrangement, if you like, and that's what you will find in in a cathedral. So the axis is, is generally in a cathedral. It's east to west with the emphasis, if you're arriving at the cathedral, on the west front, uh, which is normally the main entrance. And inside, uh, the emphasis is on the eastern end. So the congregation is facing the direction of the coming of Christ. That's the idea. It's also the direction of the rising sun. Yes, it's where we get orient, to orient oneself and orientation and things. It's the idea of arranging a thing or a person so that it's facing east or to build the church with the the axis running due east and west with, as you say, the chief altar at the eastern end. But that is why we orientate ourselves. It's all about the orient. Yeah. Of course, it's confusing because not every church or cathedral maintains this strict east-west axis. Um, and for example, there are churches in Rome, notably the most famous, St. Peter's Basilica, actually faced the opposite direction. Okay, so that's the sort of the direction. The axis is the direction of the church. But what you walk down when you've come through, uh, usually the main entrance, the west front, is the main body of the building. You walk down the nave. Why is a nave called a nave? So the nave is, as you said, it's the main body. So this is where all the people coming to the cathedral to worship will congregate. And it is related to the Latin navis, a ship, because the cathedral was symbolised really as a ship bearing the people of God. I mean, quite often you will find in religious imagery, you will find the idea of a boat, won't you, which is navigating stormy waters and you have Christ with you in the boat so that you are never alone. It's that kind of idea that God will guide you through the storms of life. Oh, it's nice. Very good. So you walk down the nave and then you come to the transept, which is the crossing that forms the cross. Why is the transept called a transept? Uh, well, the trans bit means across or through or over to the other side. And that's there in so many different words, including transport, of course, which means to carry you to the other side. So that's the prefix. And then there's the septum. Now, the septum is um, it's used in lots and lots of different fields, anatomy and zoology and things, but it can also mean a sort of an enclosure, if you like. It is considered to be the sort of the two subdivisions or the arms of the cross part of a cruciform church, if you like. So it is enclosed or hedged in. That's where the idea comes from, an enclosure. With the transept, often above it, there is a dome. Dome, what does that come from? Yeah, it dome simply goes back to the Latin for uh, the same sort of shape, if you like, the rounded vault. I thought it was something to do with house, like Yeah, domus so the Duomo in Italian is the house of God. But it was a house or a home, but also, I suppose, the most heavenly part of a cathedral, which is where God would, would reside. Very good, in the dome. Or there might be a, a tower. Many a cathedral has a mighty tower. Why is a tower called a tower? <laughs> A tower is, uh, well, have a guess, because I think you might be able to guess where this one comes from. Tower, tower, 
I don't know. No, no, I don't know. Tower. Okay. Well, it came to us from French. Oh, tour. Um, I mean, but yes. I mean, that's that's too obvious. It's the same word, isn't it? It is tour. exactly the same. Further back, we actually don't know. So it's meant oh. a lofty building, really, right from Old English, from Anglo-Saxon times. And you'd think then it, it might come from uh, Germanic, but actually it was a Latin borrowing this one. And there's lots and lots of siblings and lots of different languages. But where it actually comes from, we're not completely sure. What about the spire? Do we know about that? Yes, aspire is um, not to do with breathing as in aspire and inspire and expire and things which you might consider. It simply goes back to a very old word, a Germanic word, meaning a sprout or a shoot. So it is something that kind of shoots up into the air. And you also have the flesh, of course, um, F. L-E-C-H-E, which if anyone knows their French means an arrow. So it's the same idea of something sort of shooting up, if you like. But in terms of architecture, it's a very slender spire, especially one that's over the intersection of the nave and the transept. Well, before we cross the transept and go into the choir, the sanctuary, and find the high altar, I think we need to take a little break. Yes. Just to say, though, Giles, we should remind all the lovely purple people that we are taking the show on stage again from the end of September. Oh, we're doing it in a cathedral. Oh, oh I, I'd love to do it in a well, cathedral. Well, curiously, I've done shows in cathedrals and the acoustics can be a little bit challenging. Ah, uh, OK. I've done shows at Ely Cathedral, uh, Salisbury Cathedral, Winchester Cathedral, and... I think we're better off in a theatre. Are we going to be in a theatre? We are going to be at the Fortune Theatre. So we're sort of having a monthly residency for a while, which is nice. And uh, we're going to kick off on September the 25th. And then for me, um, happily, there's also one in my hometown of Oxford. That's on the 9th of October. So, Oh, this is exciting. Because, A, I've got lots of stories to tell you about the Oxford Playhouse. Because Ah. in the 1970s, uh, after my fiasco with ruining Yehudi Menuhin's violin, I moved, as it were, from the cathedral to the theatre. And I ran the Oxford Theatre Festival at the Oxford Playhouse between 1974 and 1976 with um, some very interesting stars of stage and screen. So I've got lots of names to drop and tell stories to tell. So that's on the 9th of October in Oxford. And the, the Fortune Theatre, of course, is where there's a marvellous play. The Woman in Black is on there normally, Monday to Saturday, and then we're going to be there on Sundays, aren't we? Sunday afternoons. Oh, well, I said we won't make it too spooky, but maybe we could have a spooky episode. Um, oh, we should, to frighten you. Yes, oh, I love being frightened. So for tickets and info, the lovely purple people can go to somethingrhymeswithpurple.com. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. This is Something Rhymes with Purple, and we are touring a cathedral today. We've just crossed the transept, and we've come into the choir. That's the bit just beyond the transept. What is the choir in the cathedral? Yes, so... It's used in slightly different ways when it comes to the cathedral because you've got the architectural use of the choir, the section, and then you've also got the choristers who sing at the services. And then you've also got the section of the church where choral services take place. 
all of them go back to the Latin and Greek, in fact, chorus. And the chorus in ancient Greek drama was somebody who read the prologue of a play. And the singing sense came from the fact that the people in the play, under the leader of the chorus, would often sing their sentiments at the intervals. That's where we get our modern sense of the choir that most of us would think of today, people who sing. And the place in the cathedral that is the choir, this is where this chorus took place in the early days? I mean, why, why, is, why is the place called the choir? Yeah, I don't know why that was chosen for where the choristers would sit, I'm not sure. I mean, it's in the chancel, isn't it? With which is has also got the high altar in it. So perhaps again, it's a sort of specially reserved place um, that was considered very holy. Give us the origin of the word chancel. A chancel has got a lovely etymology, actually, because it comes from the Latin cancelli, c a n c e double l i, and that meant cross bars. So the Cancelli also gave us chancellor because it goes back to the cancellarius who was a porter or a secretary and a court official who was essentially stationed at the grating, the crossbars, that separated the public from the judges. And so the chancel also was kind of situated, I guess, um, separated from the public, whether or not it was with a, by a crossbar, I'm not too sure, but that's where it comes from. Because in a cathedral, amongst the officers of the cathedral, I mean, the cathedral is usually run by the dean. I mean, the bishop is the person, he has his chair there, but actually the cathedral, the team that run the cathedral will be the dean and chapter. Do you know the origin of dean and, and of chapter? Uh, it's really interesting, all of these sort of, I mean, dean, not so different, although you get deans of universities and things, don't you? But um, it goes back to the Latin for 10, or at least one set over 10. And it originally a dean was a head or a chief or a commander of a division of 10 people in the military. Mm. And then it was applied to a head of 10 monks in a monastery. And then essentially out of the kind of monastic use came the head of the chapter or body of canons of a, of a cathedral. Uh, so that's where it comes from. So the 10 bit has become lost really over time, but a little bit like decimate, which people get very cross about when that's used wrongly. And a chapter is all to do with the head because it's a diminutive, um, so the little version of caput, C-A-P-U-T, uh, which in Latin was, was the head. And it was also the capital of a column, a headdress of a woman. And then the chapter of a book, of course, is the kind of heading of the different sections, if you like. Uh, so that's where the idea of um, a division within a cathedral came from as well. You mentioned the cannons, the cathedral cannons. These yeah. are not guns that explode. These are people. Um, and, and they may be spelt differently. Is one with two ends, one with one end? Yeah, so the cannon that we fire has got two ends. The cannons that are the clergy men and women who live within with others in a clergy house, that's just spelt with one N. And what's the origin of that? Well, I'm not sure we're completely sure about this, actually. Um, lots of different relatives in other languages, but we honestly, I don't think particularly know. It's linked to the idea of being canonic on the canon of literature because it's all about the heads, if you like. I mean, the, the canon of literature is the sort of, you know, the, the thing that is considered most authoritative, really. And the canons are those who were considered to be almost sort of those living according to the canons or rules of the church. But quite where it comes from, I don't think we know particularly. And we talk about canon law, 
being, as it were, the, the law of the church. The law rules. of the church, yeah. the canon, yeah, absolutely. Okay, true. we're getting closer to the high altar. We're in the sanctuary. Sanctuary is lovely because it simply goes back to um, the Latin for safety, really. Um, it's also applied to um, to heaven quite often um, in the olden days. I'm interested um, you say safety because I think of it being, you know, things holy. being... Holy, exactly. Yeah. Sanctified, yeah. sacred. Uh, but it's safe, yeah. is it? Is the well, it's, bo- it's both, really. The two go together because something holy was offering refuge and, um, and safety. And, of course, refuge goes back to the Latin fugere, meaning to flee. So a sanctuary is somewhere that would offer a holy, safe space from which people could flee and save themselves, really. And is sanctus, the word sanctus and the word saint, are they related to? Saint is definitely, yes, that does definitely go back to the idea of, uh, well, in terms of saint, a canonised person, really. Also the name of the archangels originally. But yes, the holy sense is definitely predominant there. We've reached the altar where we will be worshipping at the altar, A-L-T-A-R, what's the origin of that? Yeah, again, um, if you look in the OED, you will find a very, very, very long uh, etymology. I've always thought that it goes back to altus, meaning high. So we're talking about sort of high worship, if you like. And certainly the altar is a raised structure, isn't it, that's used as the kind of focus of worship. But the OED will also tell you that it probably is linked to adolere, which meant to burn or cremate, um, which brings us back to the idea, well, not back to back to the idea, but we've talked in earlier podcasts about how much we both love the smell of incense, mm. um, which is obviously the beautiful mixture of fragrant aromatic spices and things um, that are burnt often within church. There's so much in this cathedral I want to discuss, but we're running out of time. Let's just take a couple more words. The the entrance of the church, there's usually, there's often uh, the cathedral, there's a huge font. Uh, Why is a font so-called? And is it the same as a printing font? No. So the printing font goes back to the French fondre, meaning to melt because obviously it's the actual process of casting or founding and using molten metal. So that's that. The font that you will find in church is related to the fountain and uh, ultimately the French for a spring, uh, font. Um, but you also find fount, don't you, F-O-U-N-T um, in English, which kind of sort of, sort of trod a, a parallel path, if you like. Um, so the baptismal font is very much related to fountain and the idea of water and the source of holiness as well as um, holy water. What about the organ that is making marvellous music for us? Is that the same as the organ in a body? No, it can't be. Well, it is actually, yes, because um, it all starts with the Greek organon, which meant a tool or an instrument. And of course, our organ, the organs in our body are very much the instruments that keep us alive. And you'll find it in organise as well, where you sort of put your tools together, if you like, or indeed use tools to kind of organise yourself. Well, two of my favourite places in the cathedral, one is standing at the lectern, uh, reading from the good book, the other is up in the pulpit. Uh, the lectern uh, it comes from Latin for reading, doesn't for it? For reading, Le- absolutely. Lectore. Yes. Um, and this is, they'll be at the front of the nave, a lectern, the Holy Scripture is read. Many a lectern, I think, is done, the, the, I can picture huge golden eagles supporting the book on the outstretched wings. Do you know why it's the eagle is often used as a symbol? Um, 
no, I don't actually. I'm sure the purple people would. Maybe is it about elevation and, and holiness and soaring through the skies? I think it's the symbol of St. John the Evangelist. Ah, okay. Spreading the word, I think. Oh, I love that. I think. Okay. And again, maybe it maybe it's the idea of outstretched wings that embrace and soaring high in the heavens. Take me up into the pulpit. I love climbing up into the pulpit, particularly one where there's a little door that you open and you close it and then you stand inside. It's got a roof on it and you speak to the people. I'm happy in a pulpit, but tell me, what is the origin of pulpit? It was once called the cackle tub. Did you know that? So no. when a when a preacher would get up and start the sermon, they were said, if rather unkindly, to be talking from the cackle tub. Um, not not particularly nice. But yes, pulpit, actually, I'm not sure you would have enjoyed stepping up into the pulpit always because it could also mean a scaffold. Oh. So uh, whether or not it was a scaffold from which to hang people, I'm not completely sure. But the idea is of a raised, enclosed platform, really, which both a, a scaffold and a pulpit are. And it actually goes back to a word with exactly the same meaning um, in Latin. And again, lots and lots of different relatives in other languages. Goodness gracious me, up in the pulpit we go. Well, we barely scratched the surface with this, haven't we? I mean, there's so much, so many more tales to tell. There of... are. And I haven't even told you about gargoyles. Um, oh, well, yes. I mean... Well, just give me the gargoyle. On the exterior of a cathedral, I can see the gargoyle. And often they're actually representative people associated with the cathedral. What is the origin of a gargoyle? Yes, uh, it actually goes back to the old French gargouille, uh, which also gave us gargle, of course, meaning throat because of the water that often passes through the throat and the mouth of the figure represented often as a caricature um, in the gargoyle itself. I've not sent you, have I, my book? Odd Boy Out, my childhood memoir. No, you haven't well, sent it to me, but I have one. I bought one. Oh, my God. Oh, well, that's Yeah, I do. So it's, I, on, generally, it's on my bedside table, so don't be well, offended that I haven't got to it yet, but I am Don't worry. To. When you get to it, quite early on, amongst my childhood confessions, you will read how, in the 1950s, the, the then Pope died, and there was going to be a new Pope, and I decided I wanted to be Pope one day. When I grew up, I wanted to be Pope. And my parents explained to me, no, you can't be Pope because you have to be a Roman Catholic to be Pope, and we are Anglicans. So I said, well, what, what's the equivalent? They said, well, you could be the Archbishop of Canterbury. So I wanted to be the Archbishop of Canterbury when I was a little boy, and I used to conduct, I made my own Canterbury Cathedral at home in my bedroom. I created Aww. all this paraphernalia and I dressed myself. I had a kind of eider down that I put around me like a cope. Oh, oh, we must talk about another day. We must talk about the, the clothes worn by clergy. Yeah. Anyway, and I conduct, and I married. The point of the story is, I think, when I married my sooty to my sweep, I conducted, I, I mean, I had a book of common prayer and I did the marriage service. I married Sooty to Sweep. And I read, this was back in about 1957 or 58, that I probably was conducting the Church of England's first gay wedding. Amazing. So I love of, that. Ahead of the curve. I love okay. that story. We'll come back, I think, to things yes. canonical. because it's a fa yes. Universities as well. We ought to do a, a, oh. a one on universities because there's so much there, graduate, bachelor, Degree, there's loads. We must every and look and never mind my book, Odd Boy Out. Do you know the novels of Anthony Trollope, great Victorian writer? Yes, the palaces. I, I mean, I've read some of them and I've listened to others. Now, and the, the, the palaces are basically political novels about political life in the nineteenth century. What you need to read are the Barchester novels. The Last Chronicle of Barset is one of the greatest books ever written, but there are half a dozen of them, or maybe more, and they are set in Barsetshire, and it is about life in a cathedral community. And I have to tell you, the Barchester novels by Anthony Trollope are as gripping as any soap 
opera ever conceived. And it's all in this world of deans and canons and archdeacons and, oh, well, we don't have to. We rec- I recommend to people across the world who listen to Something Rhymes with Purple, if you haven't discovered the works of Anthony Trollope, this is the treat that lies in store for you. The rest of your lives will be happy. Excellent. I love that. And I loved this. I've learned, I learned um, loads, actually, because I think you know your way around the cathedral a bit better than me, despite the fact that I went to a convent. So um, thank you for talking me through. Well, can we, I want to come to the convent with you. Get thee to a nunnery. We must do that one day. Let's get <laughs> okay. down there with the nuns and the monks and the abbots. Oh, that's the joy of Something Rhymes with Purple. It is a bottomless pit. And of course, we have to explore words and language that the purple people want us to explore. We've had so much correspondence this week. Jasper is a word people want to ask about. Andrew Matthewman has been in touch. Hi, Susie and Giles. Having listened to the recent edition on insects and your explanation of the link between wasps and vesper, I wondered if you were aware that wasps are referred to as jaspers in Sheffield, where I come from, as in the classic song Dandelion and Burdock by John Shuttleworth, which goes, At the Kreitz Tram Museum, disaster befell poor Ian, A vicious jasper made him drop his dandelion and burdock. So two questions. Is jasper a variation of vesper? And how widespread is the use of jasper? Does anyone outside of Sheffield know what John Shuttleworth is singing about? Thanks. Love the podcast. Andrew Matthewman. So etymologically, vesper, which is named obviously after the wasp, the Italian for wasp, because of the kind of buzzing noise that it makes as it speeds along. And as you know, it's one of my ambitions to buy a vesper. That is on my bucket list. Um, But uh, jasper is in the Oxford English Dictionary, actually. So it's quite well known as a um, largely dialect word um, within English dialect for, uh, for a wasp. And there are two suggestions. One is that it's a development of jasper, the mineral, which is yellow and dark and often sort of has bands across that looks like a wasp. And the other is that it is actually simply riffing off the male forename jasper because it sounds a bit like wasp. And if you look back far enough to the 19th century, you will find that Jasper was actually used for a louse, believe it or not, in the English dialect dictionary in Lincolnshire. Uh, so it's been applied to various insects, but certainly it is um, fairly well known now that it is a local word for a wasp. And those are the two theories. Very good. Any more letters? Yes, we've had Robert Russell. Hello. My whole life, my grandfather called me a Molly Duca because I'm left-handed. I would love to know the etymology of this word. Regards, Robert. Now, we've talked, haven't we, Giles, about how left-handers get such a rough ride, well, in life and in language as well. They're always associated with inferiority and weakness, and I'm afraid that's the case here, because Molly was once an insulting term that was applied to effeminate men. Uh, And that goes back centuries. And you will find, in fact, a molly hander in the dictionary, meaning, you know, again, a a left hander, if you like. Now, the duca bit is a little bit more elusive. And I had to go from the OED to the brilliant Green's Dictionary of Slang, the OED of Slang, which I often mention. And there, Jonathan Green says that dukes are there, a stand-in for hand, possibly because it's rhyming slang for Duke of York, fork, and your hands are your forks. Uh, So I love that. But he also says there is a chance it comes from a Romany word, duckering or duckering, which means palm reading. So again, an association with the hands. So two possibilities there as well. 
Great. Well, look, if you've got more queries, send them in, you know, voice notes, emails, keep in touch with us. It's purple at somethingelse.com. From around the world, we want to get in touch with you. And if you want to get in touch with us and be amused to have some of our merchandise, we currently have 20% off on all our stock on our online store. It's a summer sale. So go to the link in the episode description for this episode or Google contraband shop that's contra with a k contraband shop something rhymes with purple we've got t-shirts mugs totes available while stocks last <laughs> susie you always wanted to say while stocks last <laughs> while stocks last um <laughs> trio is it time for my trio three special words for us to try and absorb Oh, well, I have been browsing recently through Samuel Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language. Now, we've oh. done a whole episode on that. But you will remember that unlike modern lexicographers who really never pass judgment on a word, however much they don't like it, uh, they're simply describing language, as we always say. This one made me laugh. I quite like this word, actually. It's immoment, immoment. So I am M-O-M-E-N-T. And it means of no importance at all, trifling. But the reason it caught my eye is that Samuel Johnson then says afterwards, a barbarous word. He hates this word. Uh, That's my first one. The second one is for anyone who on a hot day like today takes the cap off a bottle of water, um, glass bottle hopefully, and just literally necks it. Uh, It could be something stronger. And it's guttle. G-U-T-T-L-E. Now, it can apply to food, but I usually use it as in sort of necking something greedily and uh, basically getting it down your throat throat because you are so thirsty and parched to guttle. That's my third one. And the the fourth one, sorry, the third one of my trio is, I I just like this one. I just think it's quite sweet. You know when sometimes if you're making muffins or you're making pies do you ever do this Giles and you you have it's some years since I made a muffin (laughs) it must be said and indeed even more since I made a pie I'm not a great cook Okay. Well, um, you know how how you can get, for example, if you were making muffins or if you're making little apple pies, you have those sort of muffin trays and they're just lots of little holes and you put them in cases and then they line up next to each other. And sometimes the sort of mixture oozes onto the next one. And so you end up with what is essentially the pie form of a monobrow because they all start to join. And that's called a kissing crust. Mm. And a kissing crust is when one crust touches another in the oven. I just quite like that one. That's actually a lovely word, the kissing yeah, crust. crust. And I can picture it totally. Even though I've not made muffins, I can picture the kissing crust yeah. very easily. Yes, good. How about you? Do you have a poem for us today? I have a poem. In fact, I've only got part of a poem because the poem itself, I think, is too long. But I want to encourage people, when they're not reading Anthony Trollope and they're looking for a poet this week, go to one of our former poet laureates, poets laureate, forgive me, get that right, <laughs> uh, the great Sir John Betchman. I wanted this poem. It's called In Westminster Abbey. I thought we're talking about cathedrals. We must do a poem set in, well, it's an abbey, but it's like a cathedral. And it's a a lovely, evocative poem written, I think, during the Second World War. And it's a lady who is in the cathedral. And I think she's just gone in to say, maybe to take part in a short service or just to get a little breath of cool air before she has another appointment. And you can see the type of person she is. This is middle class, an, a middle class English lady during the Second World War in Westminster Abbey. Let me take this other glove off as the vox humana swells and the beauteous fields of Eden bask beneath the abbey bells. Here, where England's statesmen lie, listen to a lady's cry. Think of what our nation stands for, 
Books from boots and country lanes, free speech, free passes, class distinction, democracy and proper drains. Lord, put beneath thy special care. 189 Cadogan Square. Although, dear Lord, I am a sinner, I have done no major crime, now I'll come to even service whensoever I have time. So, Lord, reserve for me a crown and do not let my shares go down. I will labour for thy kingdom, help our lads to win the war, send white feathers to the cowards, join the women's army corps, then wash the steps around thy throne in the eternal safety zone. Now I feel a little better. What a treat to hear thy word, where the bones of leading statesmen have so often been interred. And now, dear Lord, I cannot wait, because I have a luncheon date. <laughs> How old was that poem? Uh, that poem's written during the Second World War. Gosh, uh, it sounds quite modern in a lot of the language, the safety zone and things. And yeah. yet, obviously, steeped in the history of the time, giving white feathers to cowards and that sort of thing. Horrible. It's wonderfully evocative of, of the class. It's, of course, he is sending up this upper yeah. middle class lady in, yeah. the, in the cathedral. But at the same time, that's what I love about him. He, he's both sending her up and also you can see the affection he has for her. Great poet, John Betjeman. What a great episode. Thank it you. It was. Isn't, I really enjoyed that. Isn't it fun? I hope we can meet everybody again this time next week. We've got, this is, we've got 170 or more episodes, so do check in, listen to the backlist sometime. We have some bespoke social media channels as well now. Oh my gosh. Um, so if the purple people would like to follow us there, they can find us on at Something Rhymes on Twitter and Facebook as well, or at Something Rhymes with on Instagram. Please do recommend us to friends and please get in touch as always by purple at something else.com. And please do consider joining the Purple Plus Club for some bonus episodes on words and language. Over to you, Jazz. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production. It was produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, and oh, the Guttling Gully. 